Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Our guest is the Australian educator, principal and acclaimed author of more than 40 books for teenagers and children, John Marsden, who calls his latest book a parenting manifesto, drawing on his decades of working with and writing for young people. He's sold over 5 million books worldwide. He's probably best known for Tomorrow When the War Began in the series and is founder and principal of two schools in Victoria as well as a stepfather to six boys. In his new book, The Art of Growing Up, John Marsden laments what he calls a pandemic of toxic parenting where overprotective parents hover over their offspring ready to prevent anything bad befalling them, where children grow up unable to make decisions for themselves and where schools often find themselves subverted by high-achieving, overbearing parents. All this, he says, is having a serious impact on young people. John Marsden is with us from Melbourne. John, welcome. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. I loved the example. We talk about the helicopter parenting, but the, the Canadian example where it's called curling. And in the middle of winter here down in central Otago, the curlers will be out. They know exactly what you mean, sweeping away every little bit of ice in front of you. Yeah, I was always bemused by curling when I first saw it as a sport, and it took me a while to figure out how it worked. But yeah, the uh, boulder is uh, has its way cleared by people assiduously sweeping to make sure that not a single impediment stops it from reaching home. There's a lot in this book, and what brought you to the point of writing what's essentially a parenting manifesto? I think just the accumulation of those experiences of teaching over so many decades and uh, a realisation that things were changing and not changing for the better generally. There's a major shift in the last 10 to 20 years. It's happened very quickly. And one of the manifestations of that is the growth in anxiety among children and teenagers. And they often take the form of panic attacks, which are really quite disabling and become... uh, serious concerns for educators because we are well aware that these teenagers are just a few years away from leaving school and entering the adult world and we worry about their like the likelihood of their succeeding in that world. There are a lot of factors. You talk about the last 20 years. How much of that anxiety pandemic do you put down to their lives lived on social media or our lives lived on social media and what that has done, the constant awareness of being assessed and judged? Well, some. I think that's a factor, but it's not a full explanation by any means. But it certainly does uh, change the dynamics of family life. I remember with my wife sitting at breakfast at a restaurant in Noosa Heads in New South Wales and uh, watching a very young family. The parents were on mobile phones and in one of those special chairs for very little children at restaurants was their infant daughter, who was not old enough to feed herself, 
and yet she was old enough to use an iPad. So she was on the iPad, the parents were on the phones. Every few minutes, one of the parents would look up, grab a spoonful of food and shove it in the kid's mouth and then go back to their phone while the child chewed the food and went back to her iPad. And there was no conversation between them. That was the only sort of interchange between them. So that was just one example. I'm sure your listeners would have other equally horrifying examples. You talk about the rise of toxic parenting. How do you define that? Yeah, it's a broad term, but one of the things that we're seeing very commonly is the landscape of the child restricted now to such an extent that it becomes kind of barren of any uh, spiritual or other content. And, And I use the word spiritual very widely, but the landscape of the average child now is the home, the school, the shopping mall, the sterile playground with its soulless plastic and metal equipment, and maybe they get to stay over at their grandparents occasionally or visit them or maybe have a sleepover at a friend's place occasionally. But for so many kids, that's now it. That's their world. And it's not surprising that they are not gaining much or learning much because there's not a lot of experiences available to them from that narrow range of landscapes. The reference to the helicopter parent or the curling parent who is forever sweeping trouble out of the way. You despair of this. Yeah, it's very much, I think, related to this fear of physical... Well, it's a number of things, but the fear of physical injury is very strong among parents for their children. And so the idea that a child might cop a bruise or a graze or a scratch seems to be so abhorrent to many parents now that they will do anything to protect the child from that. But in protecting them from physical damage, then they risk causing all kinds of other damage so that the child's emotional intelligence, for example, doesn't develop, their social awareness doesn't develop, their ability to look after themselves, their development of inner strength and confidence and resilience and initiative, all those things suffer. And it's interesting at the schools you mentioned that have started where we do the opposite and the kids range widely through the bush and they climb trees and they roll down hills and ride skateboards and bikes and ripsticks and mysterious things called Munro boards, which are skateboards that go down any any terrain, so they can be quite a wild, exhilarating ride. And in all the 14 years I've been running schools, we've really never had a serious accident. We have lots of grazes and bruises and scratches, but uh, and there has been an occasional broken bone, which is not fun at all. It's uh, terrible when it happens, but it's not the end of the world and people do recover from those and uh, it's like they say every scar tells a story and sometimes those stories are horrifying and awful but sometimes they speak of adventure and uh, a good courageous spirited approach to life why did you open the school the schools john oh look it dates back i'm embarrassed to say in some ways it dates back to when i was 14 or 15 and sitting in school looking out the window, feeling utterly bored, but also horrified at the way the school was run. And it seemed so obvious to me that if you changed this and this and that and introduced something there and got rid of something over here, the school would be so much better. And that seemed so obvious to me. And the frustration grew as I became a teacher and worked in schools that were severely dysfunctional in many ways in many situations and I visited a lot of schools as a writer to give workshops and talks 
And I could see things that worked brilliantly, and I could see things that were just appalling. And I thought if I took all the things that worked brilliantly and put them into one school and didn't take any of the things that didn't work, then something interesting <laughs> might happen. And so it kind of just grew like that in a sort of haphazard way. However, do you still, even with this philosophy, experience the same as other principals I've spoken to as another Australian principal who went for broke on this, with the parents who come in and it is all about their child and uh, it is all the school's fault, (laughs) do you still have to deal with that aspect, which we'll talk in a bit more detail about? Yes, absolutely, he says in a weary voice, because it's a daily event. And it's partly, I think, we may attract more parents who are struggling than other schools, but that's a big statement, and I'm not sure that it's true. But it's certainly um, part of the society. Now, I noticed when I started the high school that the kids who started there were from our own school, Candlebark, but also from a variety of other schools because we had a huge new intake. And the thing that I found very gratifying was that the kids who'd been at Candlebark coped with everything with cheerful and uh, and resilient kind of qualities. But the kids who had come from other school systems, I spent the first week just in a state of kind of appalled um, concern to see kids who had lost a textbook uh, locking themselves in a toilet and calling their parents, kids who couldn't find a classroom, running off into the bush and hiding behind a tree and calling their parents. And I'm talking about 15- and 16-year-olds whose only strategy was to ring their mother or father and ask them, beg them to come and get them from school and take them home. And I'm not talking about one or two kids. I'm talking about 10, 20, 30 scores of kids who would break down under the slightest provocation. They seem to have no coping strategies at all. You see, that's interesting for two reasons. First is the lack of coping strategy, but second, they've got again, they've got the technology where they can make instant and constant contact with the parent to fix everything. Whereas when we didn't have that technology, what happened at school happened at school unless the teacher rang home. But tell me a little bit more about what you've dug into here. You talk about parents who not only love their children but are in love with them. And to you, what's the difference and what's the risks? Well, when I talk about parents being in love with their children, I'm talking about parents who put their children on a pedestal and are unable to acknowledge that they may have some difficult behaviours or some unlikable aspects to their behaviour, which is ridiculous because every human being has unlikable aspects and every human being has behaviours that aren't uh, entirely to their credit from time to time. And they also have this Hollywood sort of attitude They'll, they'll say things like, my child is my hero. And then they'll follow up with lines like, um, my child has never lied to me. And I sort of look at them and think, well, good luck believing that for much longer because uh, you must be very naive to think that that's the case. So all these kind of um, people who believe that children are pure and innocent and angelic and sweet, that's a sentimentalization of childhood which is become very strong in the last 50 years and which is ignoring the true nature of childhood because children are like anyone of any age. They have, they're capable of a whole range of behaviours, they have a whole range of feelings, they have a whole range of attitudes, just like we all do, and uh, some of those are likeable and some are less likeable and uh, we need to just acknowledge them as they are rather than sentimentalise them or start believing that they are some sort of superior 
being who's got a radiant light from heaven shining on them 24-7, which would be an awful burden for anyone to bear, I have to say. There used to be another saying for that. It was, it was the other end that we called about it. We, we, we referred to it. <laughs> My, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah, My no, child is extraordinary is another one. And, and I wonder sometimes if... If we almost encourage this with uh, with our system here now, where we have excellences and merits and this is and that, and there's this constant measure of of excellence and you know extraordinariness, for many people, just getting to be really damn good and ordinary would would, would be um, would be welcome or or average. Average being simply a measure of um, you know what, what most of us are. But again, is that yeah. another word you hear? Extraordinary or... Oh, endlessly. And uh, creative is a popular word now. They will tell me that their three or four-year-old is very creative or very imaginative. And I'm not sure how you really define that at the age of three or four or what criteria you're using to establish that. But it's, it's true, again, of humans that we all have strengths and weaknesses and we all have things we're good at and things we're not. And so to single out one thing that someone's good at and to then infer from that that they must be gifted or brilliant or geniuses is a big step to take. The reality is that Albert Einstein might have been a genius at physics, but he probably couldn't write very good poetry. I don't know, perhaps he could. But uh, what was he like at chewing horses or uh, training dogs or playing basketball? So we've got, we need to just be realistic. And I'm not suggesting that we should... Um, be negative about children at all. The opposite. I think we should, in fact, take better care of them as a society. But we've chosen the wrong road to take in taking better care of them. We think that we're on the road to taking better care of them, but it's a dead-end road for many families and many adults and many teachers. One of the points is, well, the kids need the boundaries. And the kids need you to say when something's wrong or something's not okay. That's what you're there for. And this is to another point that you make. You don't have to be nice all the time. We're not saying you should be nasty or cruel. But give me the examples where, there's one wonderful example, where a parent had simply never really directly told off a child and and what was happening. Yeah, there's been so many parents who've said to me, my child has never heard the word no. And they say it with a kind of virtuous glow. So that's a great asset. But... There are examples in the book like the one of the parents who, my own favourite is the parents who were woken at 4.30am by their child who said, is it my birthday yet? And they said to me wearily, telling me the story later, well, so we had to get up and get out the cake and get out the presents at 4.30am. Apparently they didn't think of saying, no, it's not your birthday yet, go back to bed and we'll wake you up when it is your birthday or whatever. But there was also the parent whose child wouldn't be strapped into the baby seat in the car and put on a huge tantrum every time they had to go anywhere and according to the parent these tantrums would go for 15 minutes before the parent would finally say look I'm just going to have to use force to strap you in and I said well why don't you do that from the start because if the 15 minutes of negotiation and cajoling and pleading and begging aren't working then you're wasting your time you might as well just say look I know that you don't like it but it has to happen so I'm going to strap you in and uh, here we go it would save you 14 minutes every time you go out shopping, which would be a relief to to many parents, I think. Let's talk a, a little bit more about what happens if you are all nice all the time or, or not corrective, or if you minimise a child's transgressions. Your point is 
children need to learn social behaviour. Appropriately at appropriate age, but they're going to need it when they're older. And what is the, 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 the damage where you are not pointing out, correcting, and requiring a response to transgressions? Well, there's two obvious areas, and they're both hugely important. One is in relationships, that if you have parents pandering to your every whim and serving you hand and foot while you're growing up, what happens when you get into a relationship at the age of 25, 30, 40, whatever, and your partner does not actually want to play that role? Or even worse, what happens if your partner has had the same kind of upbringing and the two of you are waiting on each other to, to be at the beck and call of the other one? I don't think that relationship's going to be a very long-term relationship. And the other place is in the workplace where there are jobs that have to be done and some of those jobs may be boring or messy or unpleasant, but... If you're brought up to be gratified at every every turn, then you won't want to do those jobs. And I know, for example, one of my early jobs was working at Sydney Hospital where I was cleaning up vomit and cleaning, cleaning up urine and cleaning up spilt methos from people who sadly drank that because that was the cheapest form of alcohol they could get. So, yeah, it was messy stuff and it was unpleasant, but it had to be done and I did it without any great... Uh, emotional re reaction, I just took it in my stride as part of the job. So these kinds of, it's like life is not always a gold pass experience. We're not always flying business class. And uh, we need to accept that getting our hands dirty, both literally and metaphorically, is a very useful and important, even vital part of growing up. Because really one of our primary tasks as parents is to prepare children for adulthood. And that's almost the overriding aim of parenting, to get them ready to be successful adults. Ways to foster independence then, and, and a lot of them that you give in the book, are to stop doing things. What practical things should you stop doing for them? You should stop over-regulating their lives for a start. So after school, if they are going to ballet class one day, martial arts the next, maths coaching the day after that, then something's wrong and you need to step back, cut out most of that stuff and give them time and room, space to play, to be on their own, to be with their friends and to just play out scenarios which they will do and gradually become better at. So, for example, at our local tennis club, adults dominate the children's tennis competitions on Friday afternoons and Saturday mornings when we have the games. So all the parents are there watching their children. Adults are umpiring all the games. And I'm talking about kids as old as 12, 13, 14. And what happens after each set is that the children come off the court, go straight to their parents and sit with them and talk to them until the next set starts. And then they go back on the court. They don't talk to their partners. They don't talk to their opponents. When they're on the court playing tennis, they don't talk to each other because the adult umpire who's standing at the end of the net dominates the, the space. And so there's just no interaction. And I sit there watching because I'm afraid I'm just like the other parents. I turn up and, and watch. But um, it is sad to me for me to, to see these kids just... They don't even know each other's names most of the time. And uh, they might swap half a dozen words or a dozen words in the course of a, of a whole set of tennis. And to me, that's not what sport should be about. There's no uh, social interaction at all. You believe it's important to teach people to teach children to be good conversationalists. Let's begin with part one, which is when it's okay to interrupt 
and and when it's not? Do you see some instances where as soon as the child, even if they say excuse me, speaks, that's it, they, they, they take over? It's a fine line, isn't it, John? Because you're a communicator. You want to encourage children to have the confidence to participate and to speak and to courteously uh, introduce themselves. But what are you seeing that concerns you sometimes? There's a couple of things. One is that kids have learned these magic words, one of which is excuse me and the other one is sorry. And they, many of them quickly believe that those words will be, again, gold passes. So the adults might be right in the middle of a conversation, the child says excuse me and immediately imagines that they can take over. Or they've done something appalling to another kid and they say sorry and think that that then wipes the offence. Life isn't that simple, unfortunately. So yes, children absolutely should learn to converse, but part of that is learning to pick the moment when you join the conversation. So you don't cut someone off in the middle of a sentence and you wait until the appropriate moment. But it is absolutely vital for the 21st century that we develop fluency of language in children because language is becoming more so than I suspect in any previous era the vital tool that people need. The days of using a stone club to win an argument are over. Stone club? Where'd they get that from? A wooden club, sorry. <laughs> or a lump of stone. Those days are over. It's all words now that are going to be the kind of uh, preferred method of resolving conflict and settling disputes and uh, working out solutions. And boys in particular, and this is a generalization and certainly not true of all boys, boys tend to be less fluent in language, verbal language, than girls and written language too. So the more we can encourage them to develop their language skills by increasing their vocabularies and allowing them to speak without uh, filling in the gaps for them, because we tend to rush to provide them with the words if they can't think of the right word for a moment or two. Just wait for a moment or two and let them have that time until they think of how they want to finish their sentence and let them do it without us prompting them at every turn. So it's a slow, patient process, but it's it's going to be more and more important in the future than it has been even in the past. You say if children sense a vacuum in the family, they will rush to fill it. What do you mean? Well, the same thing happens in a classroom. Nature abhors a vacuum is one of the things I was taught when very young, and uh, it's true in the family and it's true in the, in the classroom where if the children sense that the parents or the teacher are not able to manage the situation, that they're not up to the job, then they will take over and fill that space because unconsciously they know that it needs to be filled. And there's also that kind of lust for power which all people have. And so if they feel they can be the dominant person in the group, then they'll um, put their hands up for the job pretty quickly and they won't bother putting their hands up, they'll just jump in. So what I've seen quite often is families where a three-year-old, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old becomes the, the dominant person in the family and they tend to get the others, even the parents, to bend to their will. And I've seen plenty of classrooms where the raucous, noisy, worst behaved kid in the back row will jump in because the teacher's inadequate. You don't get the diligent kid who's working hard and would be a good role model filling the vacuum. It'll usually be the noisiest and loudest one. And so one of the things teachers and parents have to learn is to be adults. And with a teacher, that means coming into the room in such a way that the body language and the words immediately signal to the class that should things become chaotic, there is one person in there who can restore 
uh, sanity to the situation, and that is the teacher, not not one of the kids. Otherwise, you do get kids testing you every day to see whether you can do it. If they sense that the teacher is inadequate, then they will constantly test that teacher day after day after day, tormenting them, you could call it, until the teacher finally proves that they can take charge, in which case the tormenting stops immediately, or the teacher can't ever achieve that, and so they become embittered or disillusioned or depressed and often leave the profession. And that's a painful thing to watch, but it does happen. You talk about the importance of young people feeling empowered and not infantilised. And are schools guilty of this too? Yeah, very much so. And it's uh, become endemic through our society. And it's, again, gotten a lot worse in my lifetime. I think in the days when kids could leave school at 14, and even younger, if you go back another generation or two, they would take up adult roles to some extent from that time onwards. They would become apprenticeships, apprentices or juniors in some company or workplace. And they might get teased and treated very badly, and that's not something that should happen. It's an ugly reality. But they did take some significant steps towards adulthood. But now the kind of almost uh, credo of governments is that people should stay at school until they're effectively about 22 or 23. So they have 13 years of primary and secondary schooling, and then they go on to university for another three, four, five, six years, and they are not able to take on adult roles until that entire long process has been completed, which means that even though they're physically and in many ways emotionally ready for adulthood after they've started adolescence, so by about 14 they're actually craving more adult responsibilities, we deny them those and treat them as infants for many more years following. So even up to year 12 in Australia, they're not allowed to cross the road outside the school unless there's someone, an adult there with a, a flashing sign or fluorescent clothing or something to to make sure that they don't get run over. And really, I think uh, if you can't cross the road on your own by the time you're 17 or 18, I'd be concerned about your future as an adult. You're hard on parents in this, and do you give due recognition to the pressures many families and often you know, sole parent charge families or complex families are under? Yeah, and I make a tokenistic <laughs> reference to that in the book, but I felt that was unnecessary because there's so much kind of lavish praise for parents and so much uh, protection of parents in various forms of media that I don't think I needed, need to add to it. So I really wanted to point out some of the things which are going horribly wrong. And that's not parent bashing in my view anyway. It's just trying to get people to look into the mirror and start to really objectively assess whether what they're doing is effective or whether it's actually damaging. Because so often people excuse their practices by saying, I'm just thinking of the children, you know, I care for my children, I love my children, this is how I show it. And that sounds nice, but it doesn't actually, uh, the, the walk doesn't match the talk so that the practices that people follow are often quite uh, harmful. Thank you, John, John Marston. Toxic parenting. The book is The Art of Growing Up. John Marston is the author. Our apologies there for uh, the line. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.